Amen. Bonnie and Linda, we're glad you're back. You do wonderfully, as always. We missed you. They never listen to me, I don't think. Anyway. Mm. <laughs> All right. If you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to read eight verses 18 through 20. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, so a few p- quick things before we begin. Uh, if you notice, we didn't go to verse 21 today, and it's the last verse. Future reference next week might be a little shorter <laughs> of a sermon. But that said, we are at the closing remarks of First John. And John has really emphasized a lot of points about love. He's emphasized a lot about knowing who God is and knowing that we can know that we have God. And so it's with this that he comes to this, almost a conclusion of his letter, with these three verses. In verse 18 he says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. John is often focused on knowledge. Even though he is coming to a close on his letter, he does not end without continuing that trend of knowing. This reminds us that knowledge is important. What we know is significant for our relationship with God and for each other. Now that said, what is the specific knowledge that John discusses presently? It focuses on those who have been born of God. To be born of God is a reflection of those who have been transformed by the power of the gospel, who have confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. Such individuals are born of God, who are in the Son of God, and who have eternal life. But what specifically about those born of God? John discusses how they do not keep on sinning. Previously, we saw how certain sin leads to death. John is reminding his readers that those who are born of God do not live in such a sinful lifestyle. They do not continue to live in sin. Instead, they are able to live in a way that is glorifying to God in faith, righteousness, and love. How can this be? John does not focus on their own abilities, nor does he focus on their own strength. Instead, he points to the one who is greater, the one who is in them who is greater than the one who is in the world, and that is Jesus. He is the one John speaks of when he says, he who was born of God. It is Christ who gives them their assurances against sin. He does this by protecting or keeping him or them. That is, Christ protects or keeps the believer. Again, we see the supremacy of Christ in this situation. It is a reminder of what John has said previously when describing the youth who overcome the evil one. It is not necessarily their own ability which causes them to overcome, but the fact that the word of God abides in them. Thus, all Christians fall under this protection. Because of this, protection, the evil one does not touch him. That is, he does not touch the believer. This does not mean that the devil does not hound believers, nor does it mean that Christians will not undergo some form of persecution. 
Instead, it is a recognition that though the devil does tempt, and though he does come after believers, he will in the end not be victorious over them. He cannot beat Christ. And if Christ is in us, we can be sure that he cannot take us down either. Hence, it is Christological in nature. It is because of Christ we have the strength. And it is because of Christ we will overcome the evil one rather than be overcome by him. Now we come to verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John now introduces the second knowledge focus in these three verses. In particular, we know that we are from God or of God. This is interesting. John previously focused on us being born of God, but now he focuses not on our relational status with God through Christ, but he focuses on the reality that we can know we belong to God. We are his possession. This has serious repercussions for the second half of the verse. It is the second half that we learn that this whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In other words, the evil one owns all the darkness that we encounter in the world. This world, the darkness therein, is under his control. Even if this control is fleeting, and even if, in the end, his reign is short-lived, nevertheless, his reign is still seen in the darkness around us. For as John said previously, Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. And this includes sin and its repercussions on the world which we see in evil. Now this may seem a depressing statement, but it becomes less depressing when we think of the redemption which is found in Christ. For though the devil has power in this world of darkness, those who are in Christ belong to God. Thus, even if the world does not belong, does belong to the devil, those who are in Christ do not. They are in the possession of the mighty God of all things. And because of this, it reflects back on the reality that the evil one will not overcome them. Now this leads to verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John now introduces the final two knowledge statements in his letter. The first focuses on the Son of God and understanding. Concerning the Son of God, John reminds his readers that we know he has come. This knowledge of the coming of Christ reflects the very beginning of the letter, when John considered those who had experienced Christ in the flesh. By knowing God has come, we can be sure of everything John has said throughout the letter, since Christ is the central point of John's letter. But that does not end there. It also leads to understanding. This understanding is cognitive, it's thoughtful by nature. It is reminiscent of Paul when he reminds us that we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds in Romans 12. God does not only redeem the soul or the spiritual, but all things, including our very thoughts, they are being redeemed through Christ. This then leads to the final knowledge statement, which is that we may know him who is true. It reflects an understanding of a personal knowledge of the one who is true. 
Having this personal knowledge reminds us of the fact that we can know this individual who is God personally. Likewise, we can see that we have obtained the truth of who he is. This personal understanding of the one who has come leads us to direct ramifications. In particular, that we are in him who is true. Thus, the personal does not end with knowledge of the individual, that is God again, but an actual relationship with the one who is true. Who is the one who is true? Now, it is hard to say in this particular context whether John has been focusing on God the Father or more specific toward the Son. As we see, it becomes too intertwined to even tell the difference, as John specifically says, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Thus, there is a reflection that if we are of God the Father, the one who is true, then we are in his Son. Likewise, if we are in his Son, who is true, then we are in the Father. Ultimately, John may be purposefully correlating the two together to end on a high note of his letter, and the one who is the Word of God, who is the life, which is Christ, who cannot be separated from God in light of all that John has taught us on. Ultimately, John ends with the highest note he can concerning Jesus, which is that he is the true God. It makes sense for us to understand John speaking this way because of the second part, which is that he is also the eternal life. Life has, throughout 1 John, been synonymous with Christ, who is the life. Thus, Minus the postscript with the final verse, John ends his letter with eternal life, which is exactly how he began the letter, by reflecting on the life which has come. Now, the main focus of these few verses are to remind us of the knowledge we have concerning Christ, the world, and the truth itself, which is that Christ has come and we are in him. This sets up a dichotomy between being in Christ and belonging to God versus being in the world and belonging to the evil one. Therefore, reminding us of the significance of Christ by whom we are set apart and taken out of the world. Thus, Christ comes to the focus. It is because we are in Him, we are in the Father, and it is by Him we have attained eternal life. Now, this leads us to a few application points, and there's really three, including the gospel. But the first one is a little bit longer, so I apologize in advance. The first one is knowledge and truth. As we have seen in today's verses, the concept of knowledge is important for John at the close of his letter. In these three verses alone, John says we know three times plus an additional we may know in verse 20. Altogether, that's four statements about knowledge. John is establishing for the readers. Since the time of the Second Great Awakening, scholars, church historians, theologians, pastors have noticed that knowledge has slowly been less substantial within the church as it once was. During the Second Great Awakening, especially, there became more of a desire for the spiritual, a desire for big preachers to do big things. I think if we all reflect on the American Christian religiosity, we can see that this same kind of theme applies, as though the Spirit only moves in big moments. That's not what I was going to say. It can become quite the popularity game within Christians, Christianity. Granted, that is not to say that all big ministries are bad. 
Some, if not many, are very good. They seek to glorify God. They seek true knowledge of who God is. However, there is still this overarching belief that bigger is better. That having a big experience within church is what is real, whereas not having a big experience is not as real. And that's when we get to as though the Spirit only moves in these big things, these big moments. I think we can all hope that that's not the case. Many of us understand that the Christian life is not often made of big moments, but made of everyday mundane moments. That God himself is not only found in the big wide-eyed moments, but in the everyday life of his people. Part of the life of his people includes their knowledge of him. Most people forget that everything we know about God is knowledge by nature. Um, That to know God is to have knowledge about God. To have knowledge about God, to have the right understanding about God, is to then have truth about God. All of these things require us to use our minds, to learn more, to seek more understanding. So it is that John focuses on knowledge as a major theme within his letter. We know it has been a major theme because he has hit on it many times. What we know about God is significant for us. Improper knowledge of God or a lack of knowledge of God, can be evidence that one is not of God. Therefore, proper knowledge of God, having right knowledge of God, is evidence that one is of God, as John has established today. So this should cause us to consider that while the spiritual aspect of Christianity is important, so is all the rest. One cannot simply have an experience. We also have to be learning We also have to have knowledge. Without knowledge, how can we know that our experience is, in fact, from God? If it's true. Let me give you an example. Let's say that one day, you and I are walking down the street, and I stop, and I begin to just talk to the air. After a while, you approach me and say, Pastor, what are you doing? Who are you talking to? I respond with, I'm talking to God. He's right there. He is telling me to drink Kool-Aid mixed with cyanide. Only by doing this I will enter into heaven. Now my question is, how do we know that this experience is a true experience that I've had with God? Can we know? Is it possible for us to hear such an individual speak and make a judgment and whether or not That experience was a true experience. Can we make that kind of a judgment? Can we have such knowledge, such truth? Well, one can argue, yes, we can by checking what is being said against the scriptures. Do they align with the knowledge already given to us by God or not? In this circumstance, it requires us to have knowledge in order to discern what is fact versus fiction. What is right versus wrong? How can we discern then that the experience I am having in that moment is right or wrong? By having proper knowledge and understanding of God as he has revealed himself through the scriptures and throughout church history and in nature. In such as the above case, God has never called us to simply drink Kool-Aid and mix with cyanide. Likewise, we know that the only way we can have eternal life to enter into heaven 
is through Jesus Christ and his work, not through what I do or what you do. In this way, having knowledge will help us differentiate between right and wrong. Now let's consider another example that isn't quite as religious. Let's say that we're driving, and I say, stop the car! There's a dinosaur on that hill! You stop the car, and look up to where I'm pointing, and you see nothing. That being said, or being the case, you say, I don't see a dinosaur. So how do we reconcile this? How is it possible for us to come to a conclusion, and how can we decide who is right and who is wrong in this scenario? Well, we gather the evidence. We go up, we look around, and if we find no evidence that a dinosaur was ever present in that general vicinity, and when we consider the scientific and natural facts to the reality that dinosaurs are in fact extinct, um, therefore, after gaining that knowledge, we conclude, I was not seeing something right. My experience was wrong, and we move along. God did not make us unthinking creatures. God created us to be thinking, to use our minds, to consider the world in its wonder and glorify God for his creation, to seek him and understand him, to know more about him. Knowledge, then, significantly affects our lives. John is focused so greatly on knowledge here because he recognizes how knowledge directly influences much of our lives and therefore why it is so important for us to have proper knowledge. This is the further significance of knowledge. Consider what John says about what it is we know. First he says, we know everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning. We gain knowledge concerning lifestyle. We can know whether one belongs to God or whether, one, or whether they are willingly living sinful lifestyles against the will of God. Those who claim to be of God and yet live blatantly in sin and unrepentance are like those who see a dinosaur on the hill. There's no good evidence for their claim that they are of God. And we know that because we know those who are born of God do not keep on willingly sinning. The second, we know we are of God. To have this knowledge of belonging to God has direct implications for us because it means that we are not of the world. It means we do not belong to the world. It means that our allegiance belongs first and foremost to God. It means that though the world would seek to lay claim on us, in the end, through Christ, we belong to God and not this world. The third, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. This knowledge is the foundation for our faith. Without this knowledge, we cannot have understanding, nor can we know truth, nor can we know that we are of God. Knowing Christ, knowing he has come, and therefore, or thereby, having the understanding of his coming and what it all entails for us in our lives is grounding for us. And then the fourth, that we may know him who is true. To know Christ is to know God and vice versa. It is only through this knowledge that it is possible for us to be in God and for God to be in us. Again, we find the necessity of being able to know what is true because of Christ. Correct belief, correct doctrine is all tied to right and true knowledge. We can have this knowledge. It is able to be attained. Does this mean that we will know everything there is about God? Of course not. 
For to understand everything about God would require eternity upon eternity. But to not have a complete and comprehensive knowledge about God does not mean that our knowledge is not true knowledge of God. I can know about something truthfully while not knowing it completely. Ultimately, we need to get away from the idea that knowledge isn't important. Knowledge is important. Our congregations must remember this. It simply will not do for us or for our congregation or any congregations to be one of big events, big things, if there is little or no knowledge of God. It will be useless for us to speak and preach to the world if we do not ourselves know God. We must continue to seek Him with all of our beings, including our minds. There are two specific things to consider with this. The first is that this is an encouragement to continue to seek and know God. We can never be too young or too old for this to be applicable. There can never come a point in time when we say, I've learned all I can about God. Since such a statement cannot be made, then we need to make sure that we are a people who commit ourselves to continue in this knowledge and continue to seek Him and His truth. The second is, how wonderful is our God? Our God is not completely unknowable. There are many deistic religions which will acknowledge the existence of God, but will conclude that we cannot really know Him. How sorrowful would it be if that were the case? But God is knowable. He has revealed himself to us. Because he has revealed himself to us, it is possible to have a relationship with this God, to have understanding of him, to know him. I suppose that is one of the main reasons for us to continue to want to know more about this God, because he has revealed himself to us in the first place. He revealed himself to us through the making of the cosmos, but specifically through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to whom all the scriptures point. This is our motivation, to keep our minds on the task of knowing this God. When I consider all this, it reminded me of Blase Pascal, who once wrote, When I see the blindness the wretchedness of man, when I regard the whole silent universe and man without light left to himself and as it were lost in the corner of the universe without knowing who has put him there, what he has come to do, what will become of him at death and incapable of all knowledge, I become terrified like a man who should be carried to his sleep to a dreadful desert desert island And should awake without knowing where he is and without means of escape. And thereupon, I wonder how people in a condition so wretched do not fall into despair. I see other persons around me of like nature. I ask them, if they are better informed than I am, they tell me that they are not. And thereupon, these wretched and lost beings, having looked around them and seen some pleasing objects, have given and attached themselves to them. For my own part, I have not been able to attach myself to them. And considering how strongly it appears that there is something else than what I see, I have examined whether this God has not left some sign of himself. Pascal was a devout Christian. In his pensées, his thoughts, 
and his conclusions concerning those thoughts led him to God and to Christ. Let's continue to be of like mind, to look around us and seeing the despair of man, the vastness of the silent universe, and of all the questions we may have concerning life, let us be seekers of knowledge and of truth. Let's cling to the knowledge of God, which is the foundation for all truth, and let us never let go. Ultimately, there is knowledge of God, not only knowledge of God, but correct knowledge of God. As John said today, we can know truth. That truth is tied directly to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who God is, in his personhood, in his attributes, we can know through Jesus. It is not a matter of guessing, but it is true knowledge of God. As said previously, in this life we won't know everything, but not knowing everything does not mean that we cannot know what is true. God has revealed himself. We can know God and we can know him in truth. Therefore, with our minds, we must be dedicated to two things. The first is knowledge of God and the second is the truth of God. We cannot be seekers of one and not the other. Instead, we must seek both, even though we are limited, and grasp that which is true knowledge of God, who has revealed himself to us by his grace, his mercy, and his love. Seek, then, to know this God in truth. Seek the understanding of this God, which comes through Jesus Christ. Do not be discouraged by the reality that God is limitless, and therefore we will always be learning more and needing to know more about him. Instead, let this give you encouragement, reminding you of how wonderful our God is, that he has made himself known, and that the knowledge of him is worthy of our endless pursuit, for he is worthy of such dedication. Now this leads us to our second point. Throughout this letter, or throughout this epistle, John has focused on the duology between life and death. When it comes to the close of the letter proper, John focuses on the former rather than the latter. In this, we reflect on the idea of what John has been trying to remind us of, which is the life which we have been given through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When we consider it, this is a fitting way to close the epistle, especially when we take into account the opening of the letter when John wrote, "...that which was from the beginning." which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. As we see, John reflects on the knowledge given to them at the beginning, which concerned the word of life, the eternal life itself, which is Jesus Christ. Ever since that first chapter, ever since the opening, life has been a dominant theme throughout John's letter. How we can attain eternal life through the Son, and how we can know we have attained this life through the Son. So at the end of the letter, it comes back to the same theme, the same concept of life. What does this life entail? 
Well, we know it entails a changed lifestyle. We know that it involves true knowledge, true belief, doctrine in God, and we know it involves the love of God given to those who are in Christ and how that love will overflow unto others, especially other members of the Christian faith. Yet what else does it mean? We notice a few more things that John has written. The first is is that it's eternal. For to be eternal indicates that it is not temporal. It does not end. The life we have attained is not one which is like the life we currently experience. It does not suffer from entropy. It does not suffer from time. It will not grow old. It will not grow weary. Instead, it will continue on forever in the peaceful reign of our God. The second thing we notice is that John says, We are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. In other words, that which is eternal is in us, and we are in him. Where does our eternality lie? In Christ. It is in him we find eternal life, because he he himself is eternal life. Thus, anyone who has the Son, and whoever the Son has, has eternal life by definition. We see the power of this in 1 Corinthians when Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must be put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, by whose victory shall we be raised imperishable? Is it your power? Is it my power? Is it your victory? Is it my victory? No! We do not receive the victory on our own. It is good that it is so, for we could never attain victory over death on our own. If we could, we would have no need of Christ. But as it is, we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is His victory. It is His power. It is because He has conquered that we will conquer. There is incredible hope here for those who are willing to take it. The hope is that through Christ, our victory has already been assured. And we can know this victory because Jesus was He is victorious. It is not a victory which is unknown. It is not as though death might win and Jesus might lose. No! Jesus has already won. And if we are in Christ, then that victory has already begun in us. Eternal life does not begin at death. It begins when we are justified and begins to be, when we begin to be sanctified by Jesus Christ through the Spirit of God according to the Father. Our life has already begun. We are no longer growing old, but growing young. The more we seek out our Father in heaven through His Son, Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Second Corinthians, So we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do not lose heart. This world is wearisome because it is in a state of decay. We grow weary of decay. We grow weary of the world that is filled with entropy. But we know the day is coming when the Son of God returns and His full glory will be revealed. The weight of that glory is, as Paul says, beyond comparison. That is what we will enter into. This eternal life. A life filled with the presence of God. A life dwelling in the very glory of God. We are not there yet, but we know that this is where we are going. Have courage to face today. Be encouraged to stand firm on the gospel of Christ, abiding in him as he abides in you, knowing that all those who abide in him inherit eternal life, where peace, joy, glory, and love abide in us through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the word of life, the eternal life given to us from the Father. All in all, we see the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, It is through the gospel we find true knowledge of God. Through the gospel we receive understanding concerning this God, the creator of all things. It is through this gospel that our sins are taken away, and we can inherit eternal life through the Son of God. The wonderful news of the gospel, the wonderful news of transformation, of God dwelling with us forever, of this life given to us by God himself. This gospel begins with our origins. It begins with God who created all things by the power of his word. Lastly, he created humanity to bear his image. It is because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, is moral, has personhood, and displays hesed, we can as well. It is here that we find the greatest reason for dignity, for sanctity, for worth of human life. Yet like God, we are also able to choose. We could either choose to follow God in obedience and life, or sin into disobedience and into death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. It is because of this our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. It is because of our sin we continue to accrue this greater moral guilt before our God every day. And unfortunately, it is not a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a righteous judge. Thankfully, God displayed his majesty despite our transgressions. He sent his light and spoke his word of life into our darkness, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is through him our relationships can be reconciled, so we can have true relationships with each other and with God. It is by his blood we are saved from our guilt. His victory in life over death becomes our victory in life over death. All that is required of us is two things. The first is repentance. We are to turn away from our sins and turn toward God. We are to live lifestyles which glorify God rather than sin. We are to live according to the scriptures, in step with the Spirit of God, in love. The second is faith in Christ. We are to recognize our total dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what We can do, but what Christ has done which saves us. 
Apart from Christ, there can be no salvation, for there is no other word of life. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, that we find salvation and we are saved. For those who remain disobedient, there is only condemnation. None of us can stand before God, our righteous judge, with our own merits and hands. All of our good deeds are as filthy rags compared to the holiness and the righteousness of God. Therefore, to go to God apart from the word of life will lead only to death and judgment and sin. For sin. For those who are obedient, however, there is no longer condemnation. Instead, they become children of God Most High. They have renewed relationships and fellowships within themselves, others, and God. They inherit an eternal kingdom where they will experience the peace and love of God forevermore. They inherit eternal life. My hope, as we continue to consider these final thoughts from 1 John, is that we would continue to reflect on that which we have received through Jesus Christ. There is so much to know, so much to understand concerning this God of light and life. Seek him out in his truth and know that this life has been given to us if we are in Christ. For Christ himself is the life, and, all dwell, and if we all dwell within him and he in them, then they and we shall receive eternal life. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the knowledge that you have given us. And we thank you especially for the eternal life which we receive through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the life. You have given us so much, Lord, and you continue to give us much. Let us be a people, then, who seek you out, who seek out your knowledge, who seek out your truth, so that we can praise you as you deserve to be praised, living for you in your glory. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do. Continue to dwell with us and continue to open us up to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.
2005, I mean, that's all the word. That he does walk with us and he does.